Good day to you. I'm David Creech, and welcome back to my presentation of God's amazing plan. In this second lesson, what I've called puzzle piece number two, we're going to discuss the Bible and hopefully answer the question for you, what is the Bible? Why is it so important? If we believe in an all-powerful creator God, then we must also believe that he made a way to communicate his will and his desires to us. Well, this is it. The Bible. The question might be asked, why would an all-powerful creator God choose something as simple as word of mouth and this written document to communicate with mankind? Surely there must be a better way to do that. Well, the bottom line is it doesn't really matter whether we think it was a good idea or not because it's not our plan. It's God's plan. Besides, in Isaiah 55, in verse 8, God says through the prophet Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. We would all do well to remember that. It is God's plan that we as individuals study this written document to show ourselves approved to him. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 15. Some translations say, be diligent to show yourselves approved. Why? Well, because there is a difference between Simply studying something and diligently studying something, isn't there? Uh, when I was in school, uh, I made pretty good grades, but it didn't come easy for me. I, I had to spend a lot of time studying. In fact, I probably spent uh, a little time studying every night. But guess what I did the night before an exam? I diligently studied. Why? Because I wanted to get a good grade. Because I wanted to show myself approved. And, and so it should be with our study of God's Word. I have wondered sometimes if there were some kind of entrance exam for admittance into heaven, how many of us would pass? It's been said, and I, and I like this quote, that life Life itself is the test. Fortunately for us, it's an open book test. Now, I don't know about you and, and your experience with tests, but I always thought the open book tests were the hardest. Not only did you have to know the material, but you had to know it well enough to know where to look for the answer. And the last part of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 tells us that we are to work out our own salvation. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean we get to decide for ourselves what we must do in order to be saved? Imagine that. What kind of place would heaven ultimately be if we all got to decide for ourselves what we had to do in order to get there? No, when it says work out your own salvation, it means that we have an individual responsibility 
to get it right. It means we shouldn't rely on family or friends or co-workers or even those that we consider to be religious authorities to tell us what we need to do in order to go to heaven. I mean, let's face it. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about religion or science or politics. History shows us, and we can observe even today, example after example after example of where the authorities have gotten it wrong. When we look in the mirror, what do we see reflected back at us? I think sometimes we see what we want to see, don't we? But the reality is, what we see is this outward body. Now, this outward body is nothing more than a temporary vessel, a container, a life support system for the soul while it is here on earth. C.S. Lewis is quoted as having said, You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. We spend way too much time worrying and fretting over this body, this temporary vessel, rather than the part of us that will last forever. The part of us we don't see reflected back in the mirror. And because it will last forever, our souls should be our most prized possession. Yet it is often our most neglected possession. These verses, 2 Timothy 2.15 and Philippians 2.12, that we just talked about, tell us, warn us even, that we have an individual responsibility to get it right. Let me give you an illustration to kind of drive this point home. It's, it's a bit of a lengthy illustration, so bear with me. Let's suppose that you receive an important package in the mail. It's so important that you have to sign for it. And in that package is a rather thick document. You, you, you pull that document out of the package, and as you thumb through this document, you notice that most of the pages are labeled Last Will and Testament. It has a cover page from, from a local attorney's office stating that you had a distant relative, one you didn't even know about, who has died and, and they've left their entire estate to you. It's an inheritance worth more than $100 million. And that's after all the taxes are paid. Is that something you could get excited about? The cover letter goes on to say that in order for you to receive this inheritance, you must study this document and you must follow the enclosed instructions precisely. Well, what do you do? Would you study the document and follow the instructions precisely, just as it says to do? I can tell you 
That's what I would do. I would read and reread every detail. Uh, those that know me probably tell you that I would outline the document. I would highlight the parts that were important to me. I would memorize portions of it if necessary. I would also seek guidance on those parts that were difficult to understand. In other words, I would be diligent about studying that document, and I would be diligent about following the instructions precisely. Why? Well, because $100 million was at stake. Or would you just toss the document away, saying under your breath that anyone would be foolish to believe such a thing? Maybe if you received something like that in the mail today, it would be a hoax. But for $100 million, would it be worth at least investigating to see if there's any truth to it? To see if it was indeed legitimate? Or would you flip through the document and deciding that it was too lengthy and too complicated, that you just give it to someone else and say, here, would you mind reading this and, and, and telling me what I need to do in order to claim my inheritance? Well, let's say for the sake of this illustration that you did just that. Uh, let's further say that you know of a friend who just happens to be in the legal profession anyway, and you trust them as an authority to read this last will and testament, to understand it, and to tell you everything you need to do in order to receive this inheritance. Being the good friend that they are, they say, sure, give me some time to, to look this over and digest it, and, and I'll get back to you. Well, a few weeks go by, and you begin to get impatient. I mean, we are talking about $100 million here, and, and you have been lying awake at night thinking about how you're going to spend all that money. So you call your friend, and he says, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, about that. Hang on. So you hear him rifling through some notes on his desk, and he comes back and says, ah, yes, yes. You need to be at this particular location on this particular day, at 7 p.m. He continues, oh, and by the way, whatever you do, do not be late. Because it specifically says that if you are late, if you are even one minute late, you will forfeit the entire inheritance. And absolutely no excuse will be accepted. So the day comes, and, and you're parked outside the specified location at noon. You're seven hours early. Why? Because you don't want to be late. You don't want anything to keep you from getting that inheritance. So you walk up the steps to the building and, and in through the front doors, and you're greeted by a nice lady behind a counter. You tell her who you are and that you have an appointment and that you know you're early, but you just wanted to sort of check in. Well, she makes note of your name and the time of arrival and checks her calendar. She looks back up with a pained expression on her face and says, Please be seated. Someone will be with you in a moment. 
You're not really sure what to make of that, but a few minutes later, you're ushered back to see an attorney who introduces himself as the executor of the estate. And getting right down to business, his first question is, did you receive a package in the mail about this? And yes, of course, is your reply. I had to sign for it. And did you study what was in the package, the attorney asks. Yes, I did. Well, sort of. I mean, I had some help with that part from a friend, but that's how I knew where to be and when to be here. I see, says the attorney. So then you understand that you were to follow the instructions precisely, and that if you were even one minute late, you would forfeit the entire inheritance. Yes, you replied, beginning to feel a little uneasy about this line of questioning. But what does that have to do with me? I am seven hours early. The attorney, choosing his words carefully, says, Well, you see, I, I regret to inform you that you are not seven hours early, but five hours late. The attorney opens his copy of the last will and testament and turns to the applicable paragraph where it clearly states that you were to be there not at 7 p.m., but at 7 a.m. of that day. Your friend was only off by a little. If you think about it, your friend was only off by one letter. The difference between an a.m. and a p.m. Just one letter. Would you be upset about that? Would you be upset with the one that wrote the last will and testament? Would you be upset with your friend who, despite their best efforts, just gave you some bad information? Would you be upset with yourself? You know, <laughs> as absurdly ridiculous as that story sounds, as we all hear that story and we think, I would never do something like that, not with $100 million at stake. As ridiculous as it sounds, I'm struck by the reality that, that we have been promised an inheritance that is worth far more than $100 million. Yet, we often do that very same thing. We often rely on someone else to read the Bible and to understand it and to tell us what we need to do in order to receive our inheritance. What an absolute travesty it would be to get to the end of our lives, to stand before God in judgment, to stand on that very precipice of eternity only to find out, too late, that we got it wrong. And we got it wrong because we relied on someone else. We didn't study to show ourselves approved. And I've said all that to hopefully drive home the point that we have an individual responsibility to get it right. Our inheritance 
our eternal inheritance absolutely depends on it. Now, about the Bible. <clears throat> the Bible is truly an incredible book. This one book is actually a collection of books. A collection of 66 books and letters, poems and songs. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It was written by more than 40 different authors from all walks of life, from farmers and shepherds to fishermen and kings. It was written over a period of more than 1,500 years and in three different languages. And yet once it was assembled, it contained such unity of thought that it should leave no doubt that the Bible is of divine origin, that the men who wrote these things were somehow guided by an outside influence. <clears throat> Can you imagine what would happen today if we brought 40 different people together? Let's say we brought them all together in the same place. They're people who were from the same area and spoke the same language, even people with the same educational background, we even allow them to collaborate a little amongst themselves. And we ask them to write about a couple of different Bible topics. Suppose we did that and we collected up all of the papers and we bound them into a book. And we started to study that book. Do you think we'd find some disagreement between them? You know we would. That's a given and it's a given because, well, because we're just human and we make mistakes and we, we could be very opinionated and we disagree about a lot of things. So do you realize that this is one of the most compelling arguments that the Bible is of divine origin? That 40 different people from all walks of life, separated by time, more than a millennium of time, separated by space, multiple continents, separated by language, multiple languages, all contributed to this one written document that we call the Bible. And yet it contains such unity of thought. There can be no other explanation. The Bible is the only book that tells us where we came from why we are here, and where we are going. If you think about it, we didn't have a choice about where we came from, did we? We don't even have a choice about why we're here, really, but we do have a choice about where we are going. And the Bible goes into great detail about that choice. As we alluded to earlier, the Bible is neatly divided into two testaments, an Old Testament in a New Testament. Now understand that a testament is simply an agreement or a promise, also sometimes called a covenant. Today we might think of a last will and testament like we used earlier in our illustration, which is an agreement or a promise between us and the government that when we die, a chain of events will be set in motion. A chain of events that includes who will inherit our 
possessions and and what, if any, criteria need to be met in order for that to happen. In the Bible, the Old Testament was an older and a a temporary agreement between God and a specific nation of people known as the Israelites. The New Testament, on the other hand, is a a newer and final agreement between God and all of mankind. We might say, well, well, wait a minute. If the Old Testament was an older and a temporary agreement, why do I need to concern myself with it today? And the short answer is because God had a reason for that old covenant. and, And we need to understand what that reason was. And in fact, understanding the Old Covenant helps us to understand the New Covenant. So they go hand in hand. Romans 15 and verse 4 tells us that the things that were written before, that is the Old Testament, were written for our learning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11 says that it was written for our admonition. It was written as a warning to us. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24 tells us that the old law was a teacher. And some translations, like you see here, use the word tutor to bring us to Christ. And Colossians chapter 2 and verse 17 says that it it served as a shadow of things to come. So let's ask this question. If the old law was written for our learning, if it somehow serves as a warning to us, if it teaches us and helps us to understand the new covenant, and if it served as a shadow of something better to come, should it be important to us today? Absolutely. I'll give you one example. By understanding the sacrificial system God put in place in the Old Testament, can better understand what Jesus did for us and and why he had to do it under the New Testament. More on that later. What about the Old Testament being an agreement between God and a specific nation of people, the Israelites? Uh, What is that all about? Well, in the book of Genesis, uh, we see God speaking to a man by the name of Abram. His name would later be changed to Abraham. You're probably more familiar with that name. But but God said, separate yourself from these unholy people uh, that he was associated with at that time. Separate yourself from these unholy people and go to a nation or go to a land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and through you, all nations will be blessed. You see, Abraham's descendants would later be known as the Israelites. And it was God's plan that through that specific nation of people, the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come. So we see that the Israelites were a chosen people, for a chosen purpose, and all of the Old Testament laws, including the Ten Commandments that we're familiar with, were designed to keep them holy for that purpose. 
that begs the question, when did the old covenant end? Well, we mentioned in Galatians 3.24 earlier, saying that the old law was a teacher or a tutor to bring us to Christ. Well, the very next verse, Galatians 3.25, tells us that this covenant would be a temporary one. It says, after faith has come, you're no longer under that teacher. And Colossians 2.14 tells us that the old law was nailed to the cross. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, the old law died with him. Even today, we understand that a last will and testament does not go into effect until after a person has died. Likewise, the death of Christ ushered in this new covenant or new testament. And this really shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone. More than 500 years before the time of Christ, God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, saying, The days will come when I will make a new covenant with my people, and I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. In the New Testament, this very passage was quoted by the Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10, and goes on to say that a new covenant had arrived making the old covenant obsolete. And that Christ was the mediator of this new and better covenant, established on better promises. Now, a mediator is someone who stands between two parties. Jesus stands between God and mankind. It is only through Jesus that we can draw closer to God. And it is through Jesus that God draws closer to us. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us that there is one mediator, excuse me, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now we'll talk more later about why he had to do that. But as a final note about these covenants, James chapter 1 and verse 25 refers to this new covenant as the perfect law of liberty. And that leads us right into puzzle piece number three. I thank you for your kind attention and look forward to seeing you in the next class.